Welcome back to Unspoken, Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the accomplishments and lives of people you may pass on the street every day, never knowing how their achievements and life stories could inform and inspire you. Today, we'll introduce you to Kira Carrillo Corser. It's hard to pin a label on Kira. She's a world-class photographer. She's a journalist. She's a published author of four books. She's an artist. She's an educator. She's a tireless advocate for social justice. She's a single mom who raised two children while completing her university studies, even as she held down two jobs. She's a survivor of ovarian cancer. There are two other introductions that should be made. Two friends, colleagues, and collaborators that you'll hear mentioned in the conversation. One is Fran, Francis Payne Adler. Fran is a very gifted poet and former college professor who collaborated with Kira on several very powerful projects. The other is Federico Fred Moramarco, who, along with Fran, introduced me to Kira. Both Fran and Fred published very impressive bodies of work. But now it's time to hear Kira's unforgettable story. Welcome to Unspoken, Unsung's Conversation with Kira Carrillo Corser. Kira Corser. Hello. Welcome, welcome. Uh, so, we've known each other a long, long time. That's right. But you know, I was I was thinking about that the other day, and I don't remember when we met exactly. I remember that it was in Monterey, or no, actually, you were living in Carmel Valley in this really beautiful place in uh. the forest. And do you remember when that was? It probably was like 1989. Somewhere around there. Yeah, that's about, that seems like about that's right. That's when I moved up there. So, um, yeah. I didn't meet you through Federico then. Yes, and Fran was there. We went oh, and there was some okay. sort of a gathering. <laughs> and, and it was interesting, too, because you were in the middle of fighting cancer. Oh, uh, okay. You had a yep. scarf on your head and, yep. and all that sort of thing. So that would have been uh, 90, 1990. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But needless to say, these many years later. Yeah. I survived stage two ovarian cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I I my I've had doctors look at me and say, You're a miracle that I did. But I was only thirty nine. Uh-huh. You know, when I got it. So I think part of the reason I ex- survived experimental chemotherapy, which I've heard they don't hardly ever do anymore because mm-hmm. it's so difficult, is that um I was young and I was strong. And I have a will to live. You know, people used to say, you're so courageous. And I'd say, it's not about courage. It's about a choice. And, you know, I was thinking about our talk today, and I was thinking that one thing that a lot of young people don't seem to realize is they have choices, even when it doesn't seem like they do. Mm -hmm. You still have a choice. And when I was young, I remember being extremely depressed before I moved to California. I had two kids. I was a single mom in Atlanta, Georgia. I lost my job. I was on unemployment. It was, I tried to get jobs. It was just so depressing that I just, you know, I felt hopeless. And maybe that's, you know, when I, when I think about that, maybe that's why I do the work I do now because mm. it makes hope. That's my whole core of everything I do is to build hope. Mm. Interesting. I had never. I've never yeah. thought about that until now. <laughs> Actually, let's then let's let's start at the beginning and tell me about about where you were born and your family, your parents, and all that sort of stuff. Oh, okay. I was born in San Antonio, Texas. Um, my father and mother. My father and mother moved quite a bit when we were young. We moved to Biloxi, Mississippi, and Selma, Alabama. Actually, when when the riots and the uh, civil rights were going on. Wow. We were in Selma. Of course, I was only five years old or something like that. But um, And then from there, we moved to Georgia. But my father and my mother were always Democrats and always politically active. And that's probably part of why I feel empowered to take action a lot of times and encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned something about leaving Georgia. So at what stage were you... Was this post high school? Were you in college? I was 26. Uh-huh. I was a single mom with two kids. 
Oh. I was on unemployment, <laughs> and, and my sister was living in uh, Escondido, California, and she was going to grad school to get her PhD in um, uh, psychology, and she was uh, trying to convince me just to come. Trailways bus had a special for $50 you could ride anywhere in the United States, and kids under five could go for free. So she convinced me to come see her on the bus with my five-year-old daughter and I left my son with his grandparents and we rode three days and three nights on the bus to California and it changed my life. Hmm. Um, when I got to California she convinced me to go check out the junior college, just go see, you know, and and uh, and it's all, it's about hope. As soon as I started finding there was a way out, something for the future, I, um, I started changing my life. And I got into Grossmont College, which was wonderful. I, um, I found out that if you work on the school newspaper, you get, in those days, free film, free darkroom, <laughs> free air supplies, I mean, free publicity, because I had uh, work published in the newspaper and magazines. And I started winning awards as soon as I started taking photographs. So uh -huh. uh, I, I, it's like you know where your path is. And you just once you find your passion, you know you you know there's a lot of books about finding your passion. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I think once I found that, and I found a way to do that, because in Georgia I tried to go back to school to, to study photography, and they they required that you study two years of academic general subjects before you even took an art class. Hmm. And I, it just was, that was even more depressing, you know, just, I couldn't see how, and I'd have to support both kids. I mean, there was no way I could do it. Yeah. Whereas in California, in those days, they actually had support. And how old were you when you got married the first time? I was 18. Okay. When I had my son and got married, and, and then I was 20 years old when I had my daughter. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the... The breakup of that marriage was part of the incentive to leave Georgia? Well, I actually, we got divorced when she was six months old. And I was living in Columbus, Georgia. And uh, it, was, it was a challenging time. He was never around. He never helped me with the kids or with the bills. <laughs> it was just like he lost his job and he lost his mind at that time. And it was just... Um, it was something to, you know, move forward on. And at that point, I already felt that I needed to do something. You know, you, if you get in touch with yourself, sometimes you figure out that you've got to do something, you know, but you don't always know what it is. And I moved to Atlanta. So that was when I was in Columbus, Georgia, where, um, where I raised the kids until my daughter was three. And then I moved to Atlanta for two years. And then I came to California when I was 26. And it sounds like that period just before the move was coming out of a kind of a dark time. Yeah, extremely dark. Um, I was very depressed. Um, and it, I was thinking it must be kind of like what people experience PTSD. I had no emotions. I had no feeling. Mm. It's like I, you could tell me a horrible story, I wouldn't react, or a wonderful story, and I wouldn't react. And... That's why my do my sister, who was a psychologist, was <laughs> was very concerned about me. You know, she's like, "You've got to come out here. You you need help." You know, and so she saved my life. But you had already had a little bit of a vision of what you wanted to do. You already knew photography was where you wanted to go. Well, interesting. I knew I loved photography because <coughs> I uh, a f I didn't even own a camera. A friend lent me a camera. Another friend let me use his dark room. Uh, I, I, you know, I got jobs <laughs> with those cameras, like taking photos at parties and things like that, bef because I was uh, curious. Maybe it is a, all about curiosity, you know, and, and also being able to take photos where people are flattered, you know, and they look good or there's a story there. Well, there's something I've heard that, uh, where photography is concerned, it's the eye, you know, how you frame a picture, how you're, as opposed to, you know, the, the tricks of the darkroom. Is there a truth to that? So uh, basically, I think did you have a kind of an eye for an image? 
I think that's extremely true, yes. I mean, um, I have done every kind of photography, 8 by 10 <laughs> um, Polaroid, uh, four by five cameras uh, with, you know, the one with the dark cloth over your head. <laughs> I, I still remember trying to take pictures of the Grand Canyon, the wind whipping the thing on my head because they had metal uh, weights on it. <laughs> it was like, it was hard to take a photograph and you were freezing. But um, so I used to take landscapes and I used to sell them, you know. I mean, I loved it, but it was never enough. So my heart has always been in taking photographs that have a story that make hope and make the world better. It just, I don't, mm -hmm. it just seems what I always go back to, no matter if I'm painting, painting silk or doing video or photographs, it all seems to resonate in creating something that's beautiful, meaningful yeah. for others too, you know. How did that bus trip out here help make all that gel that's um you know i believe i do believe that when you're on your right path things happen and that are unexplainable so i got on the bus with my five-year-old daughter trailways and i rode you know across the country and uh and we formed like this temporary friendship in the back of the bus with about five other people there was a, a runaway girl who wouldn't give us her name she was about 17 and there was um a young man who just got out of the military and he was going to go hike the grand canyon with his brother you know and then there was this guy with a guitar and he smoked pot in the back of the bus you know oh that was <laughs> you know 1976 you know you don't do that and um and we sang and we, and we just like took over the back of the bus you know and on the uh, end of the second day, the bus driver had had it. You know, there's this old guy, and he just didn't want, didn't like us having fun, I guess. <laughs> and he, he 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 waited till the guy with the guitar that had been the, the biggest outspoken person on the bus, you know, was got off the bus to get us all drinks, and he left him and the poor guy that was going to hike the Grand Canyon. And they were like running down the street after the bus, and he, and we were all yelling, "Stop, stop!" Wow. And he wouldn't stop. And to this day, my daughter still resents that I didn't let her talk to the administrator at the at the next bus stop where we we all went in to file a complaint. But mm -hmm. um, you know, five year old, I didn't feel like she should. <laughs> but it's interesting that she still remembers that. And um, so I think different things happen for instance on that bus trip i had i had a camera because this friend i had nursed a friend through mm -hmm. a motorcycle accident and in return he bought me a camera and two lenses and a little case and it was a pentex pentex spotmatic mm. <laughs> and uh and i um i always had it with me i only had one camera and um and I walked into the bathroom at the at one of these bus stations in some small town in texas and this woman pushed past me and everybody in the bathroom was yelling and she had just robbed everybody. So if I had been in there, you know, one, two seconds before, I would have lost your camera or gotten killed because I don't know if I would have given it up <laughs> <laughs> at that point, you know. Now I'd say, take it, take it, you know. Um, and then when I got to California, another weird thing happened that is uh, similar to that is that I, um, and that's the way it's been. I uh, I was at the beach in Oceanside with my sister and uh, my camera, and we were taking pictures, and I had to change film. So I turned around my back to the ocean to put the film in, and a rogue wave came up and washed washed over oh. us. And it, if you know anything about cameras, you know that can ruin a camera. So yeah. in tears, we went back to Escondido to, to different places trying to find somebody that would repair them. And I found a, a guy who who wouldn't guarantee it, but it, my camera worked for years after he fixed it. And he taught me all kinds of things about cameras and, and um, electronics. And I won a camera in a photo contest the next day. Wow. So that's the kind of thing, you know. And then even when I worked at PBS, you know, I had gotten, I had transferred to San Diego State University. Mm -hmm. and as a student? As a student. And I was getting my uh, bachelor's degree in journalism. And I had been hired as the photo editor for the school newspaper, which I thought was great. But they paid, I think it was three or $400, and that was deducted from my grant. 
So mm. I would be paying myself to work, <laughs> which didn't make any sense to me. And so, um, again, the next day, I met Ron Coviello, who was the art director at, at KPBS on the San Diego State campus. And he said, oh, we need a student photographer, uh, you know. Yeah, that would be great, you know. And so, again, luck had me, you know, saved me. And mm. I took that job. And then I got a corporation for public broadcasting grant a couple of years later. I graduated and I became full-time with students working under me. So I ran the whole department after that. All of while being a single parent. All while being a single parent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my kids used to come up. Everybody at the station knew my kids. You know, they would come over and, and they would be welcome on the set and things like that. It was really fun. Did that bus ride feel like an adventure or were you afraid? Um, that's a good question. I think, I remember I was depressed when I started. I, I didn't, I don't remember any emotion mm. at all until I started get making friends. But, you know, I kept a journal. That's how I know some of the things, can, that's how I can remember. Who can remember back that far? Uh, because I kept a journal. And I, I remember the thing I was most impressed with was that temporary friendships can feel real. Mm. You know, that, that everyone in the back of that bus became uh, protective of each other. You know, they would read stories to Katrina when she was, you know, like we called her Katie back then, you know, when she was tired or cranky or whatever. And it was really nice, you know, and talk to her. Wow. So, yeah. And probably never saw any of those people again. Never saw them again. Never. Wow. I don't know. No. Sounds like the, the camera was kind of a, a lifeline for you on that trip. It had already become something pretty extraordinary. That's true. Photography has certainly been the core of who I am for most of my life. More, well, not my life really, but most of my career since 26. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think maybe it's a way to validate your life. You know, I mean, you were doing photography for a while. Well, and you encouraged it. <laughs> one of the one of the great experiences I had was going on a little photo expedition I with you. I remember that. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah just um, it's back to that curiosity. I mean, one thing that I do know is that um, art isn't taught in schools very well, or not at all sometimes, and so. People have this concept of art as something like a poster or something you hang on your wall, mm. when, when it can be much more meaningful and, pe and personal. If you, like that walk, if we, we went down to the lagoon, and if you take photographs of, you know, this beautiful bird that you, you get to save that memory. Yes. And I, I don't know about you, but <laughs> as mm. I'm aging, the, the memories are going, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> oh, I, wait a minute. Do I remember that? Okay. <laughs> but it it's... It's like a gigantic file cabinet. I mean, I have hundreds of thousands of photos and negatives online and in file cabinets and from PBS uh, 10 years. And, you know, just I started scan scanning slides. At least some of that is organized. But <laughs> 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 and then the exhibitions I did, I have those are into files, you know, there's like four nationally traveled exhibitions and four books so yeah. those are organized but you were saying that your sister suggested Grossmont or somehow or another you you was heard about Grossmont College and you enrolled at Grossmont that was the first thing you did when you moved down yeah so I moved to Escondido you know how far Escondido yes. is from Grossmont <laughs> it's a long way so um what happened was I guess I always have have had some ability to research. I don't know, maybe it's the curiosity again. But so I looked at different junior colleges. And Palomar College, which would have been the, the first choice, their style wasn't journalistic. It was beautiful, and they had a good teacher, but it wasn't what I wanted. I knew, I knew for some reason that I wanted to document social justice. I don't know why. And... Um, Maybe because I've seen so much that wasn't fair, you know. And I think when you are aware that things aren't fair and you realize that mm. a lot of people don't see that, you have this responsibility 
I feel, as an artist, to help people see that injustice. It's like the photos right now that are going on at the border with the kids in cages. When you actually see right. it or yes. hear it, yeah, Grossmont College was, in those days, it's still pretty great, but in those days it was um, amazingly supportive for women. They had a women's studies department, and I got a job in the women's studies center. And so uh, those people in that uh, center really helped me. And so um, I could study and help. It, j it was just like a drop-in center. So it was a, a fairly easy work-study kind of job, but it gave me a support system that I'd never had. And, um, and I was also photo editor of the school newspaper. And um, the classes were journalism and photography, so I took both, and um, and I made A's, and so I just it's sort of like I found my niche, you know, and mm -hmm. um, and then I started winning, I started entering contests, and actually the the good thing about that, and and what I would recommend for anybody that's in photography or any art form is don't always listen to just one crowd because. I had a professor who was telling me not to do certain photography, and yet that photography that I did became um, award-winning, like Home Street Home, which mm -hmm. was the first show that Fran and I did on people that were homeless in downtown San Diego. And we didn't even, you know, we were students. <laughs> we were didn't you even at State or at Grossmont? Yeah, San Diego State when we did uh -huh. that. Mm -hmm. But at Grossmont, I had been taking some pictures in Chicano Park, which is uh, murals underneath the um, bridge. Right, right. And um, there was a, a friend, a new friend of mine that I met at, at Grossmont who was in the art department, and she had two boys, and she was struggling financially, and she was considering giving one of her sons up for wow. adoption. And so the photo I took was of her hugging her son who had holes in his shoes and his shirt was kind of like two sizes too big. And underneath a, a mural of a, of a mother, like a Madonna holding a child, and it, and it won at the Del Mar Fair and mm. a couple other places. So um, those kind of pictures were... Um, I was getting outside support when my instructor wasn't understanding what I wanted to do. Mm. In fact, <laughs> the biggest argument I had was if I had my art on a billboard, I would love it. And he said that was prostituting myself. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so that's one thing about the Internet that's so great because it doesn't have to be only one way or one place. And the, still there are, maybe there's always artists in, in any field and that feel that you should just do it this way. Like even... The director of the photography museum one time told me to do this kind of art and not that. So basically, he told me not to do the fantasy kind of art that I also do, which is you've seen painted photographs and and costumes that I make and um, based on myth and magic and uh, and I think that um, if we only deal with reality it makes life a little more boring. Yes. <laughs> you know, and then yet yeah. people think that you should. I mean, it's like, it, it's like considered... Well, there's, there's kind of an interesting kind of uh, crossover about between journalism, which theoretically should be reality, mm -hmm. and then this other form of art. You know, I, re I recall... How did you meet Fran, by the way? Fran and I... That's a good question, because Fran and I were at San Diego State, and we were both in the journalism program, and she, we were in a magazine producing class. We produced two magazines that semester, which is way more than they've ever done since. They only do one magazine a year a semester. Mm -hmm. But um, she was the editor of the magazine, and I was the photo editor. And we were sitting in a political science class, and uh, and the professor said that Edwin Meese, who was attorney general, of the United States said there was no documentable evidence of hunger in the United States. And Fran started pounding her desk and said, somebody should do something. Somebody should do something, you know. And 
we and the professor looked at us because we were publishing the magazine and said, well, why don't you do something? We also had published in several newspapers around San Diego mm -hmm. together. We'd done a couple of things for money, you know, um, San Diego Business Journal and things like that. And so uh, we said, what? We're just students. What do we know to do? It was really the turning point of really understanding the power of art when you combine art with statistics and the work of other people. It's like a lot of artists do not realize that they have greater power if they work with nonprofits and activists and churches or whatever their subject is, but by combining, collaborating. But the reason they don't is then you lose some times, not always, sometimes you lose your ability to choose what you want in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in fact, we got the most radical in, in the Matriot's Dream, I think, and that's when we didn't get as many shows because of that exhibition. Because we kind of said like it was, you know, the I took this photo of turkey vulture ventures, turkey vultures in this tree, and Fran wrote a poem about the pharmaceutical industry in this, used this quote, because it has quotes, facts, stories, and poems, and the poems are narrative. So they're about whatever the subject. So we, as journalists, because our undergraduate degrees were in journalism, journalism, um, we break down a subject into the different roots of what causes what causes homelessness and mm -hmm. who are those people: veterans, seniors who have been pushed out of affordable housing, mentally ill people that were let go when years ago when Ronald Reagan was in governor's office they had this sharp, sharp Doyle Act and they let everybody out of the mental hospitals which was considered a good thing because they were such institutions not everybody needed to be institutionalized but the plan B was to give them support in um, communities mm -hmm. and nobody wanted that in their community so they just cut plan B out and left people on the street and that's why we started having so many, I mean, that was kind of like the downward spiral for mental health in this country. We just don't deal with it. We still. So that was in, in 83 around then when you did Home Street Home. Street Home. Home. Mm -hmm. So that, that predated my meeting you. The first exhibition of yours that I saw was When the Bow Breaks mm. and completely blew me away. Again, you know, the mixture of Poetry and photography was so powerful, um, as it is in all the ex exhibitions. I've seen them at least online, but um, how did you and Fran come up with that whole way of, of communicating? Well, Home Street Home was the first one on homelessness in San Diego, and it was, to give you an idea of what it was, it's 24 30 by 40 inch frames that have a story, a poem, a quote, and facts in them of different ways. And that was uh, successful. The mayor initiated a task force to study homelessness after that. Right. The senator took it to Sacramento and kept it there for a month because all of a sudden people started asking him about his bill that just sat on desks. So um, then we went to Washington, D.C., and it was in uh, one of the Congress buildings. So that taught us that art form that it, when you combine mm. all that. So then we did Struggle to be Born, which is about prenatal care, lack of prenatal care. And that actually was responsible for increasing the reimbursement rate for poor women in San Diego. And then I, when I, and KPBS did a program on that subject because of struggle to be born and the doctors in San Diego OBGYNs voted to take on at least one non-paying patient a month after that show mm. so that was kind of cool so you you see where you yes and so when we so what happened was Fran had gone to get her I guess she had gone to Arizona at that point when the bow breaks when I started when the bow breaks so uh, I started without her and uh, what happened was I was interviewing a doctor at UCSD, an OBGYN, and she said, Kira, you really need to do something on drug 
and alcohol use during pregnancy because it's a huge issue. One out of nine children are being born affected. And so I said, well, um, tell me about it, you know. And so I started researching it. And, um, and I actually wrote half that book before Fran came back to help me finish it. And, um, and that, so it's, it's stories by women, it's stories of doc from the doctors, from the nurses, from the baby's point of view. Um, and it's, and we did that project because at the time, and still now, um, when people use drugs or alcohol during pregnancy, they're put in jail and they're not, and so there's not enough support system for them. A lot of places won't take them. And so there's, so if you want to get clean, it's really very, very almost impossible in some places to do anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's hard anyway. So I wanted to show, um, the, again, the roots. So there was a, a woman who all her friends did drugs, you know, and then the guy would come and try to get her to hit, you know, all the time. And, and then there was the, the woman who kept lying to her husband and, she was young, and she said, I, I can't do this, you know, I ha I can't lose my marriage and my baby. And so, um, and then there was another woman who had been using since she was 11 years old, and she looked like the girl next door, you know. She was like a normal, average-looking person, and, right. and people tend to um, vilify people that use drugs, not realizing that it, it could be a gradual, often is a gradual issue that comes up on them and then they don't know what to do and without help. So that show was in 19 states in state capitals. The March of Dimes took it on national tour. It was in the Senate wow. and a Congress building in Washington mm -hmm. at two different conferences there. Um, and so, and the reason the March of Dimes took it on tour was um, because of that. It makes it a human issue instead of just seeing it as a crime. So Instead of being something that's just dry, rote, it's now it's visual and it has the emotional impact that poetry adds. Yeah, I mean, if you if you know the st if you know the <coughs> stories of people who are in pain, then you have a, you have some concept of how to help them. If you just turn away, how do you ever change it? Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think you can. I mean, it's not going to go away. <laughs> yeah. How old were your kids when you started all that? <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Uh, when I moved here, my daughter was five and my son was six. Wow, so you're going to school and you got a five and a six-year-old. I was going to school full-time, working two or three jobs and raising two kids. Wow. And twice a month I didn't sleep. <laughs> and I had a dark room some for a while in my bedroom. <laughs> uh -huh. Don't tell people that, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I just, uh, it was, it was challenging, you know. I mean, uh, I think about the energy that I have compared to some other people that I know, and it's harder. And um, I was blessed that I had that energy because of my friends who had kids, I don't know one that graduated with me. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, and then... Um, you know, I think life's always evolving. I used to think, well, you're, especially in photography, you know, you're, you, you get, you get somewhere, you know, and if I'd gotten a job at a big university, that might have been different, you know, I might feel like I got somewhere, but um, I've been in the Smithsonian, you know, I've been in major museums, I've been in Congress and the Senate buildings, and uh, I've had four books and all these things, and yet still financially, you know, it's challenging always. Sure. Did the kids understand? I would imagine for some there might be some rough patches through that with, you know, the demands that they may have or the desire for attention or... You know, I'm glad you asked that question because I feel blessed. My kids never made me feel that I was not giving them everything. Hmm. It was a lot of love, but <laughs> they, they, you know what they say, mom, we're really proud of you, but being an artist is too much work and not enough money. 
That's what they say. And so one is a CFO of an international company, and the other is a project manager for an international company. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they, they're still creative. You know, they take beautiful photographs, I think, you know, and um, that's probably... And they also appreciate art. My son has a huge collection of my art. Every time I've had a big show, uh, I've printed an extra piece for him. So he covers the cost on the printing, and we framed him, and you should see his house. <laughs> he has more than I do because I've sold so many. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm suddenly remembering that, you know, since you've been an influence on me as far as photography goes, that when I really started getting into photography, I was in a really down period. As a matter of fact, there was this one morning I woke up from having just had this horrible nightmare, and I, when I woke up, I thought, oh, today's going to be a real rotten one. I can tell it just feels dark already, and I'm awake. I'm just waking up. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do something different. And I went down to Costco, and I bought an SLR mm. that had a couple lenses, charged up the battery, and I went out, and I started taking images. And I cannot be depressed if I'm taking pictures. That is a guaranteed way to just take my all my attention, anything that I've got about what's going on in my life, and move it outside, out to the, looking out toward the world outside of myself. And it struck me as I've been listening to you speak that one of the features of the work that you do is that it's all external. Your your attention is all on others. Hmm. And, and peop- other people's situations and other people's needs and and the beauty and the and the horror of life, all of it. Yeah. There's also another side to where I have like four acres of garden and I and I've done a book on creating meaning in your garden. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I I I hear what you say, but I think for me taking photographs now at this age, I feel they're. It's not all external. There's a lot of internal, and maybe it is exactly that, is that it brings joy to yourself to see the beauty of life. And they say that gratitude is really what makes you live long, mm. right? So I believe it. And if you're depressed, and, and that's interesting that you said that because when I came here, I was really depressed, and when I started taking photographs and finding hope, it made a difference. You were photographing. What were you photographing? anything (laughs) the first day i got i mean i was i was doing extreme close-ups of flowers i was doing mayflies on walking on water and you name it it was just crazy that's wonderful yeah i would i was i was a regular at balboa park (laughs) Uh, that's (laughs) just whatever i could see then so you saw all the beauty well it's just it, it took my it took my attention i'm looking and seeing things i was looking for images i was trying to imagine something in a frame and it it was magical. I mean, really. I've seen that same thing happen with painting. Mm. So, uh, so the two projects I've done in the last four years, one's Compassionate Arts, and one is uh, Post for Peace and Justice. Both are collaborative community art projects. Um, Post for Peace and Justice now has 150 posts. We've been in the Carter Center, the Center for Civil and Human Rights, the uh, on the Atlanta Beltline, where 25,000 people a week saw the posts, and they're eight-foot painted posts that are done with between 20 and 100 people. So when you say posts, you mean a a, a, a post, a literally fence like post. a fence post. Okay. A fence post, an eight-foot fence post that's five inches in diameter. So that's Circular? like a 20-inch print painting, though it takes a lot longer than you think. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And uh, and each post stands for something and I think maybe maybe depression happens partly when you don't feel there's any meaning hmm. and so uh, so what I've seen I mean there were I just last couple months ago got a letter from uh, someone in Atlanta saying that this young boy was going to commit suicide and because he was working on the post he didn't you know he stopped himself from doing that because he had been in trouble with the law and he was you know getting in trouble again was worried and um and he turned turned things around because his voice mattered so what they do what we do on the post on the eight foot post is 
we think about the message that we want, say, let's say veterans, because there's a lot of veterans. Right. Um, there's uh, the we have a lead artist, and the lead artist on one of our vet our veterans posts is, was Carla Baldessari, and she was married to Jose Baldessari, who, when he retired from the military, um, he uh, they lost his retirement uh, information for six years. He didn't get his retirement. And they and she was a retired school teacher, so she wasn't like a quiet, meek person. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she went all the way up to the, you know, uh, her local legislator trying to get help. So we made a post to educate other veterans on how to to navigate the system because she would send in the forms, and because the forms weren't on the desk of that person at the same time the other forms were there, they wouldn't do anything. Hmm. So that was kind of the runaround that happened. I, I mean, maybe they don't have enough money. I don't know what the p- whole point is because I know medical insurance companies do the same thing. But what she did was she had phone numbers, websites, uh, 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 the process of what you can do to get help. And each side, there's four sides of the post, right, was the side of the military, the you know the Navy, the oh, Army. Yeah. And then she had their... Um, insignia on it so the top is really beautiful and it pulls you in it's about uh, and they always have inspiring quotes we're talking about inspired that they all uh, every post has some inspiring quote on it at least one usually two or more depending on who does them and uh and that's a way to give people hope and then give them information and give them beauty so um she painted beautiful pictures and had a picture of Jose because he died in, um, on there as a memorial. And then all his family put their hands on, and she traced them there. So the hands are on the bottom of the post mm-hmm. painted. And that kind of represents uh, we're in this together. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's not, not, alone, not a loneliness thing. You've, you've been doing so many of these for so many years. This all started with that teacher at San Diego State who said, why don't you do something about it? <laughs> I guess that would be true. <laughs> w- w- would you say, was that one of those seminal moments? Was <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm, I think it's interesting that we didn't stop. You know, mm-hmm. that Home Street Home wasn't the only, because one thing, and that's probably why I'm not famous like some other. So, for instance, when we were in Washington, D.C., there were five cities represented for about homelessness. And the... Um, the group that brought us there was called Families for the Homeless, and it was a bipartisan group of mostly legislators' wives. Tip Gore was there, uh, Susie DeConcini, who became one of my biggest mentors, um, and that was sh- her husband was the senator of Arizona, and um, they had a house in La Jolla, so I had met them, and she just um, was incredible support. And so what I saw after that show in Washington was a lot of the photographers continued to stay in the same subject on homelessness, whereas maybe from being at PBS, I was always photographing various different things because of the programs, you know. Um, When we did Home Street Home, I had a friend who was working in Barrio Logan, which is a Chicano Park area of San Diego. Um, there's more poverty. And she was telling me that um, that all the hospitals were turning women away. They were mm. just uh, turning away 600 women a month. And so I said, why? She said, well, they have midwives that would do it, but they won't allow enough of them to to work. And they say they don't have enough doctors. So um, that started me researching struggle to be born and what the causes were. I would say that is a defining moment for for knowing that you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think if I could change my life in any way, I, it would be to go back and know at a younger age that I could do a lot of things. You know, it's like for some reason, and I see this with my grandchildren, they don't see that they can make a difference. They don't, like, they'll say, I can't, or I won't, or um, that, no. They'll just say no without 
even given you a reason sometimes, and it's because mm. they've never tried something, so they're not going to try it. You know what I mean? And there's too many people like that. And um, I, I think that's a part about art that makes art really, really important. When you do any kind of art, even if it's crafts, which I consider an art, um, or music, you can make mistakes and fix them or you might learn something new out of it and some new opportunity come you know I mean oh I didn't hear that before but that sounds really cool and so if I could you know get people to think more about their own capabilities to say just try it just try it if you don't like it what's the worst that can happen you know you've mm -hmm. heard and um, and that over and over again has been kind of my my uh, learning. I just keep learning. And in the middle of the projects that you were doing with Fran, uh, it was at some point in that series of projects that you got your cancer diagnosis, was it not? Right. Um, so we had already done three projects. We had done Home Street Homes, Struggle to Be Born, Home Street Home, Struggle to be Born, and When the Bow Breaks. Mm. And um, and then I, I left PBS and I moved to Monterey to be with the man I love, I had met, who is a environmental uh, attorney in Monterey. And I moved up there and six months later I got ovarian cancer. And um, I, after, when I left PBS, I had always said, when my daughter graduates from high school, I'm going to do my art full time. You know, mm. you know how you have to be careful what you say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my daughter graduated from high school. I met Keith. I had a car accident. M the, my job at KPBS changed and it wasn't what it used to be. And all those things like perfect storm happened. And I that's when I left. But I tried to get health insurance. And it was $480 a month, and mm. I couldn't afford that. On I, I had a, a small grant to do a book, and that's all I had when I left. So what I did was went. I thought, well, I've been healthy all my life, you know. I'm 39 years old. I'll just go a year without health insurance. And six months later, I got ovarian cancer. And I, uh, in the signs were so minimal. I mean, I had like a distended tummy and a little constipation. I mean, it was like something a lot of people have, but my oldest sister had had ovarian cancer and they caught hers early. So I have, I have five sisters. And so I went to a doctor and he examined me and he, I'll never forget, you know how you visually remember something. I, I can see him walking with his hand on the knob, walking out the door saying, I'm sorry, we we don't take Medi-Cal, because I knew I'd have to go on that because mm. of my research. I had to go bankrupt. Um, I had to, um, I went to, uh, I tr I, when I applied for Medi-Cal, uh, Medi-Cal is Medicaid, you know, for right. indigent people. Um, in um, Monterey, the social worker told me I had to be terminal. And I said, I will be terminal if I don't get surgery. I needed surgery right away. Ovarian cancer will kill you if you don't get it quickly. I mean, look at all the people that die all the time from it. Sure. And so um, because of my work in San Diego, I was well known here. And I called a friend who was the director of a clinic in San Diego. And I moved back to get care. And she got, got me in right away. And I had uh, a doctor, Dr. Lafferty, who said he would do the surgery for nothing if I didn't get, I mean, a really remarkable people helped wow. me. And if I hadn't had that, and my friends in Monterey had fundraisers for me, you know, I mean, it really was an outpouring of support and love. I even had friends go into the KPBS radio station and record um, meditation uh, tapes for me, Fran and Fred, and <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to help me when I was going through chemotherapy. Every, I was experimental chemotherapy. Um, it's uh, like platinum poisoning. You're so sick that they have to hospitalize you overnight because you're throwing up all the time. And then I threw up for 10 days. It was really critical. 
um, and I almost died several times, um, three operations too, but I survived, you know, and so, um, and it's funny because um, I haven't met very many people that have survived that. But every Did they in give a you a prognosis? 50% chance. Uh. So, um, so actually what's interesting about that is a year after I, we're going in another subject, but <laughs> a year after my cancer and I was starting to get well again, stronger. I mean, I was in bed all the time. It was pretty critical. And um, uh, my best friend's two-year-old got leukemia. Mm. And so they asked me if I would go to Children's Hospital. They went up to Stanford Children's Hospital. Um, and they asked me if I would go with them to help, help them navigate mm. because of my own experience. And so one of the things that I always recommend to people that are go that get that C word um, diagnosis or even before you get it, you should always, always have either a tape recorder or a friend or two that will take notes when you get your diagnosis or when you talk to the doctors. Mm. Because you don't remember anything after you hear that shocking word. I mean, because that's the way humans are. Yeah. So, um, so that's why I went up there with them, <laughs> was to help be their ears and um, help them through it. And her name was Zoe, and she was in that hospital bed in an oxygen tent watching violent cartoons all day long. And I had already known the power of watching videos and doing meditation and listening to mellow music, you know, soothing music and colors and things. I under already knew at that point that things like that help you heal. And so a child's brain would be wonderful. I mean, how imaginative is that? Mm. So that's when I did, uh, I started uh, four books uh, for kids that was illustrated by the art director, Ron Coviello from KPBS. Um, there's Sammy Guana, who when he was sick, he would say, no, I don't want to. And there's uh, Alfonso Lamat the cat, and oh, how he loved his Dr. Pop Pat, but there was Snorky the rat, you know. And, it, um, and kids do love the books. Um, and so um, also did, I started nine years working on a dramatic film like The Wizard of Oz. It's called Flora and the Laughing River. Mm-hmm. And so we'd make costumes. That was wonderful because... I got to do all the all the parts of me that are creative got to be part of it, you know, helping with the music, all original music. You know, I helped write it and write the lyrics anyway, not the music. <clears throat> I work with my friends who are musicians, costumes, work with costumer designers, work with Fred actually helped on the script too, Fred Morimarco. Um and and then uh, that has been used at all the hospitals in Monterey County and several other places, the videos. And I'm working on the Spanish. Um, the Spanish has been recorded in the script, uh, in the book. There's a book, a parent-teacher guide that goes with the vi- film so that you can do imagination with your kid if she's sick or if if he's angry and help them learn to help themselves. You know, maybe it goes back to what we were just talking about, where yeah. where if you if you realize you have a choice, at what point in your life do you realize that you have control over your destiny? That's a good one. I mean, it is an interesting question. Maybe you don't always know. I mean, maybe you think you know, and then you don't know, and then you do. <laughs> you know, which which brings to mind, there's a, <clears throat> there's a project that you've been working on, uh, ACT, ACTC. See changes. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, That's a that to me is a particularly interesting one because I've been finding myself thinking that the chances of us actually doing something about global warming are slim to none. You know, so it's it's really a wonderful thing to see that you you've got art going and tell tell us a little about that project. Thanks for remembering that. Um, so C changes, S-E-A changes.org is a website now. But in 2012, we got a grant from the um, San Diego Visual Arts Network, and I formed a team. 
we have seven artists and seven scientists. We have a scientist from NOAA, um, a scientist from Monterey, um, scientists from uh, UCSD, California Fish and Wildlife, and um, artists from here and from there, uh, places in California. And what we did was uh, we would meet and we would discuss innovative ways to help people either understand or find solutions to climate change. And especially, so the three things that that um, Sea Changes worked with were uh, um, climate change as it affects acidification because the oceans are, are uh, what they call acidification. The coral reefs are dying because the ocean is heated up so much. It's like uh, one of the scientists said, if you take a Coke bottle and you shake it up, you know how it fizzes. Right. It's kind of what happens to the coral reefs. And so how do you grow new coral? And so one of our artists, Michelle, um, is a glass artist. And so she designed glass coral and we had it actually put into the experimental tank at Birch Aquarium and cor new coral w was growing. Another mm. of the scientists works with high school students and he's a mosaic artist in addition to studying carbon. He's been studying carbon r rising uh, since the 1970s and um, and so he was able to educate a whole uh, group of younger generation to think about what's happening in the oceans and what can be done about it. So um, at this point, because climate, I've been part of the climate change adaptation conference in Sacramento. Uh, we've been in several museums and done uh, outreach with our, and I, I realized that a lot of people don't care about the ocean because they have no idea or no experience of what really happens in the ocean what the beauty we're losing all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, they're familiar with whales a little bit, you know, but even that, how many people from the Midwest maybe have ever been, you know, snorkeling or seen beauty like that? Or the fish are amazing. I mean, it, it is. <laughs> when we were in Florida one time, I'm, it was right after my sister had died, and my son took me down to the state park at the, at the bay uh, in, in La Fort Lauderdale, and um, and there were thousands of silver fish. Oh, Dan, it was just so amazing. They were swimming which every which way. And he happened to have two snorkels, two masks, and fins in his car. But I didn't have a bathing suit, so I waited. I wasn't going to go in, and I watched him for a few minutes in this water with the fish swimming him around. It was just like a miracle, hmm. the way they were so beautiful. And I... Um, <laughs> I ended up jumping in on my clothes, <laughs> right? And it was so, there were puffer fish. There were all these different cool-looking fish that I'd never seen before. And uh, there was an eight-year-old girl that was trying to see because she could see that we were all excited, you know. She was trying to see with her own eyes under, underneath the water. And I said, do you want to borrow my mask? And so she put the mask on, and she went under the water. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to get that mask back. <laughs> uh. She was gone for a while. And then she comes, she jumps up into her brother and she goes, there's a whole new world. Wow. And that is why I did the visual, I, I project on silk. So it's called a virtual undersea experience. So I've done it. I'm going to be doing it again in Escondido in January mm -hmm. at the uh, Art Center, the uh, California Center for the Arts mm -hmm. there. Uh, where it's like 18 feet of silk, which is uh, transparent, and you walk between them, and the ocean creatures and the ocean water and the sound of the ocean is all around you, on you. It's a really oh, beautiful wow. feeling, and and it's because if you, if you don't experience that, how can you care? I mean, people have empathy when they can connect somehow. You know what I mean? And so I also educate them while they're in there. They <laughs> they learn about acidification and overfishing and, you know, we're we're losing. So we had sushi last night and, and I, I feel guilty eating it. Sometimes I don't eat it very much anymore because the tuna are being so overfished, we probably won't have it in a few years. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of, you know, I, I hear in that kind of a solution to both my concern about 
that it might be too late and and what you had said earlier about people ready to give up yeah because you hear about say the parkland kids or greta thunberg this 16 year old that's up for the nobel prize um the peace prize and then with projects like this when they get engaged in that it turns on a whole other part of their thinking that that judgment may not even be part of is there something in that do you think oh i'm glad you brought that up because um compassionate arts i formed with felicia Linay williams in pasadena in, in los angeles and we've actually been working with kids some of them from well we work with some kids from parkland in atlanta too with the post but in um the the high school kids when they did their walkouts we we had the post and we were part of their um being able to speak out about what they care about and the stories i mean i don't think people realize how much fear people are getting and how do you how do you mitigate that you know mm -hmm. and how you mitigate it is make them feel empowered and have some resilience building some resilience so my own work has switched to mentoring people and being uh and designing programs that build resilience like we right now compassionate um we're i'm on the leadership team for compassionate california so <clears throat> so we form compassionate arts and and i'm part of the leadership for compassionate california and we're both part of the charter for compassion which is the international charter that's been going on since the 70s you know, Australia, mm -hmm. and various places around the world are already part of it. And California, in mid-August, there's a resolution to make California the first compassionate state in the U.S. And Texas and Florida are behind it. Can you believe that? They're, they're thinking the same thing. We're trying to beat them. But <clears throat> so um, all that to say, what, with climate, it is depressing and scary. And, and with violence, it's depressing and scary. And the way to help people deal with that is to build resilience by by building community by building uh systems that help each other mm -hmm. you know and and so you don't feel alone and you don't feel de depressed um and you feel there's something you can do and um uh you know i mean i i don't know where the human human race is going at this point you know but I'll be darned if I'm going to let it just slide into <laughs> depression, you know. <laughs> it's like, it's like, um. That sounds like a theme of your life. I mean, all the way from from getting past uh, a marriage with two little ones and getting on a bus and, and going to school and being a parent and then facing a cancer diagnosis, you know, obviously a 50-50 prognosis that you can choose one of those or the other, too. That's one of those things that some people might just land on, oh, it's 50% chance I'm out of here and 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 just devote all their energy and, and whatever to that rather than staying alive. Yeah. I mean, so, it, matter of fact, I got to credit you with one other thing. Back when I moved up to Santa Cruz, you had a little studio of some sort i think it was near big sur or mm -hmm. something and where you had all your photography yeah. and all that and you went and showed me that studio it was in the big big sur and highlands you also yeah. took me to point lobos uh-huh oh. park and and that turned into that was magical that was you said that that was part of your healing as well yeah yeah and that place turned into some place i would go there every weekend oh, wow. that was just magic so that's thank so you great to that. hear so that's part of who you are for me, and I think who um, you are for the world. And thank you. With that, I think we'll we'll call it a day today. <laughs> and uh, so, thank you so much. You're welcome. Appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. It's thank wonderful. You. I want to thank Kira for sharing this glimpse into her life and work. I'd also strongly encourage you to see as much of Kira's work as you possibly can. I hope and believe it will leave you inspired, perhaps motivated to explore your own creativity and make a difference in the world. Be sure to join us again next month for another episode of Unspoken, Unsung. 
And be sure to reach out to us if there's someone you know whose life story inspires, but who, for now, is unspoken and unsung. You can contact us at the Conversator website. Go to conversator.net backslash contact and let us know a little bit about the person whose story you'd find interesting or inspiring along with a way to reach you. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversator studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langan engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langan. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. The podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Gwynne Jones for Zapsplat. Other music provided by Zapsplat.